the Colossians. And so we actually come to the end of that series today, and I'm going to give you kind of a long introduction to that. But before I do, I just wanted to pass along news. Um, many of you knew Dr. Ronnie Mobley. He was a member of our church for many, many decades going back, has been a big part of the community here in Oconee and Watkinsville, and he passed away yesterday. And so we just want to send our condolences to his family, um, his daughter Rhonda, particularly many of you know, um, her husband Scott. Um, anyhow, just a time of sadness for them, and so we want to remember uh, Dr. Ronnie and their family in our prayers. Um, again, we're coming to the end, the close of our series here in Colossians, and we come to chapter 4 today. We're going to cover all of chapter 4 in one Sunday, and part of that's because in chapter 4, Paul lists off lots of names, names of people that have been serving alongside Paul, names of people that are with him in Rome while he's in jail, in chains, awaiting uh, his trial before Caesar, uh, people that are also in Colossae. He names off a few people that are there that will be recipients of this letter, and so well, I just want to for us to meet a few of these people before we get to our text for today. Um, in his closing remarks, uh, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10, Paul points out, he mentions Aristarchus as somebody that's with him, my fellow prisoner greets you. Aristarchus, we learned from Acts chapter 19, was a Macedonian from the town of Thessalonica. So he was one of the Thessalonians. He was caught up in a riot in Ephesus with Paul. He journeyed with Paul to Jerusalem, carrying this uh, relief offering, uh, this, this gift offering to the Christians who were living in Jerusalem that were experiencing persecution. Aristarchus also traveled with Paul to Rome and experienced his shipwreck with him. And so this man had several years of ministry experience, shared experiences alongside the Apostle Paul. Next, still in verse 10, is Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. This gentleman is referred to elsewhere in Scripture as Mark, or, I'm sorry, as John Mark. Um, and he joined Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, but about a quarter of the way through when they got to Pamphylia, which is on the underbelly of Asia Minor. Uh, it's a port city there. Mark decided that missionary work was not for him. And so Mark abandoned Paul and abandoned Barnabas, his cousin, and and went back home, and Paul, and so about a couple of years later, when it was time to go out on the second missionary journey, Barnabas wants to take Mark with him again. And Paul says, are you kidding me? I mean, don't you remember what he did the last time we went out on a missionary journey? Of course we wouldn't take him with us again. And so Paul and Barnabas got into a sharp dispute. Barnabas said, well, fine, if that's the way you're going to be, I'm going to go my way with Mark. And Paul said, fine, I'm going to go my way. And he chose a fellow named Silas. Now, what's interesting is, as we're reading here in the book of Colossians, the letter of Colossians, Mark is with Paul. This is about 15 years later. So the two of them have reconciled. Paul has realized the tremendous worth and value that Mark brings to the table for missionary efforts. Uh, perhaps he's redeemed himself in some ways in Paul's eyes, and Paul um, speaks very well of him. And it's most interesting that this man, John Mark, goes on to write what we know of today as the Gospel of Mark or the gospel according to Mark. So one of the books of the Bible is responsible of this guy named Mark who's been hanging out with the Apostle Paul. Skip down to verse 12. Paul mentions Epaphras. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Notice the phrase, who is one of you. He's not referring to the fact that he's a fellow Christian. He's referring to the fact that, because um, we already know that from other things that Paul says about Epaphras. He's referring to the fact that Epaphras is from Colossae. He's from this area. He is one of you. He He's local to that area. And so perhaps, because Paul didn't plant that church in Colossae, perhaps Epaphras was one of the founders of that church. Um, Epaphras is always mentioned, he's mentioned earlier in the letter, always mentioned as praying for the saints in Colossae. A couple more for you. Verse 14, Paul mentions Luke, the beloved physician, Dr. Luke. He greets you as does Demas. This is the same Luke that Paul meets on his second missionary journey in Troas, right along the shores of the Aegean Sea. And Luke joins Paul and Silas and Timothy in the second missionary 
missionary journey into perpetuity. Luke stays with Paul. He continues to travel with Paul on his future missionary journeys. And so here they are some 10 or so years later, and Luke is still serving along Paul's sides. And just as with Mark, what's interesting about Luke, Dr. Luke, is that he is also responsible for two of the books of the New Testament. He writes the gospel according to Luke, and then he also writes the book of Acts or the Acts of the Apostles. Again, all of these three, what a neat group that would have been to uh, hang out with, but these three are all there gathered together in Rome while Paul is in jail, um, perhaps uh, compiling stories and sharing accounts. One more uh, for you, verse 17, Paul tells the Colossian Christians who will be reading this to say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So in other words, Archippus is not with Paul in Rome, unlike these others. Instead, he is in Colossae or somewhere close by because Paul anticipates that the local congregation in Colossae will carry word to Archippus, will let Archippus know, perhaps he's actually at that church, I'm not sure, this message of, hey, keep a going, keep serving the Lord, keep ministering on his behalf. Now, I got a little slide for you here. It's a diagram that I created. It just shows all these people that are around the Apostle Paul that we've mentioned. Um, it's not an exhaustive list of everybody in chapter 4, but it's the ones that we mentioned. And then also you have Archippus, who is there in Colossae, just so you can kind of get a visual picture of uh, who's where and that sort of thing. Now, we're going to meet two more people in our text for today. It's from Colossians chapter 4, verses 7, 8, and 9. I'm going to ask if you would, as is our custom, to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. Again, we stand for the reading of God's Word to be reminded that what? This is what? This is where truth comes from. That's right. And so it doesn't matter what other people think. It doesn't matter what, what you hear on, on the news. This is where truth comes from. So we stand week in and week out just to be reminded that this is where, uh, this is the final word in all matters. All right, here we go. Colossians chapter 4, Paul writing to the Colossians beginning at verse 7. Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. You may be seated. Already you're beginning to wonder, Gordon, I don't understand how you're getting a sermon out of all this, right? I mean, all these names and uh, and, but anyhow, just hang with me for a little bit. This is one of those sermons where you're just going to have to kind of really put on your thinking caps. I'm going to throw a whole bunch of information at you. It, there's more to come here. So just hang in there with me, and it'll all come together at the end, okay? So just hang with me. Um, let's start there in verse 7. It says, Tychicus, Paul says, Tychicus will tell you about all of my activities. He is a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. So this person apparently is somebody that Paul trusts, clearly. I mean, he calls him a beloved brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant. Paul puts a lot of trust in Tychicus. In fact, Tychicus is mentioned in several of Paul's other letters. For example, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, Paul says, Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Another occasion, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 21, Paul writes, So that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. Tychicus is coming. He's going to carry word about what's going on here. Tychicus pops up in Paul's letter to Titus. Titus chapter 3 and verse 12, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you. And then finally, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 4, Tychicus is mentioned amongst Paul's missionary companions. My point is this, Tychicus was someone 
who had been out on the front lines of ministry with the Apostle Paul. He had been to the evangelistic meetings. He had experienced all the healings and things that had taken place. He experienced all the teachings and, and had hurt Saul, Paul, get thrown into jail, all these sorts of things. He was also served as a kind of secretary for Paul. When Paul would write these letters, Tychicus most often was dispatched as the courier that would carry these messages to these churches from place to place. And then he would carry news about what, what was going on with Paul to these churches. And then just the same, he would carry news about these churches back to the Apostle Paul. Paul says in verse 8, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 8, I have sent him, Tychicus, to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. I'll take a little time out here for a second. I'm going to catch my breath, and then we'll all kind of get our thinking caps together here. I want to just imagine this scene for just a moment. Tychicus is taking this letter that Paul has sent, uh, it's, it written, it's in a scroll together. It's got a seal. It's got Paul's seal on it. The seal is yet to be broken. And Paul, Tychicus arrives at this church in Colossae on a Sunday morning. And, the, and the church gathers together in the home of one of the church members. They didn't have separate buildings back then. They had a person's home. Perhaps they would open up the courtyard of their home. However that would have worked, but they would have all met at the home of one of the church members. And on this particular Sunday morning, Tychicus is there. He's holding in his hand this letter from the Apostle Paul, this personal address from the leader of the Gentile movement, uh, church movement, and Paul's seal is yet to be broken. And then the leader of this church in Colossae gets up with a scroll, breaks the seal in front of the congregation, unrolls it, and this thing's just read cold like that in front of the, in front of the congregation. This letter is going to be the basis of much of what that church will talk about that morning. Um, so that's kind of the picture here of Tychicus arriving with this letter from the Apostle Paul. Everybody with me so far? Okay, got one more person that I want to introduce you to, um, and he is found in verse 9. Traveling with Tychicus is another character in the story, and his name is Onesimus. Paul writes, and with him, that is with Tychicus, is Onesimus. Now, when the name Onesimus is mentioned, it brings tremendous amount of drama to the story in Colossae. Um, and we'll see why that is here in just a few seconds. And so Paul says, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Just as with Tychicus, Onesimus has the respect and the trust of the Apostle Paul. Paul calls him a beloved and faithful brother. Um, now, in order to understand why, Paul, why Onesimus' presence brings such drama to the church in Colossae on this Sunday morning, uh, we've got to dig a little deeper. And so that means we need to Flip over to another of Paul's letters, a letter that he writes to a guy named Philemon. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over there, or you can just follow along with me on the screen. Um, Philemon chapter 1, we're going to start at verse 10. This is a personal letter that Paul writes to this fellow named Philemon. However, it's not just addressed to Philemon. We'll see that. It's also addressed to the church at large. Um, Philemon chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul writes, I appeal to you, Philemon, for my child Onesimus. Now, Onesimus is not really Paul's child, uh, not in a literal sense. And Paul goes on to explain what he means, basically, that this guy Onesimus had a conversion experience not that long ago while Paul was in chains in Rome. Onesimus somehow, uh, providentially, makes a connection with the Apostle Paul. Paul leads him to faith in Christ. And so in that sense, Paul becomes his spiritual father. Paul writes, whose father I became while during my imprisonment. So somehow Onesimus makes this contact um, and Paul leads him to Christ. Now, this letter that Paul is writing, remember, it is addressed to someone named Philemon. Philemon, we learn from this letter, is the master or the owner of Onesimus. Follow that. 
right? Philemon is the master, Onesimus is the slave or the bondservant. And Onesimus, we learn from this letter, has run away from home. He has escaped from Philemon, and he is now out on the lamb, you might say. And Paul is writing this letter to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus to help smooth things over between these two men. Paul says, verse 15, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, why he ran away, so that you might have him back forever. No longer, verse 16, as a bondservant, but hey, even more than that, even more than a bondservant, but as a beloved brother in Christ. I should also point out that the Apostle Paul has a personal connection or a personal relationship with Philemon. Uh, Paul writes, end of verse 19, to say nothing of your, Philemon's owing me, even your own self. So somehow these two men, Paul and Philemon, have had a connection in the past where Paul perhaps led Philemon to faith in Christ. And now here they are in this moment, Paul uh, cashing in the favor, if you would, cashing in his IOU to Philemon for what uh, what he has done in Philemon's life. As a runaway, if Onesimus is in great danger, if Onesimus is stopped by the local officials, which may well happen if he decides to go on and join this missionary movement, um, and his papers are not in order, Onesimus is going to be thrown in jail. He's going to stay there in jail until the local officials figure out who this guy is, why his papers are not in order, and eventually word's going to get to them that Onesimus is a runaway slave. Um, And so the penalty for runaway slaves is death. It'll be bye-bye Onesimus. So Paul is writing this letter to Philemon in hopes of resolving the issue between Philemon and Onesimus, between the master and the slave, with hopes of securing Onesimus's liberty, so that Onesimus is then able to is then free to go and join this missionary effort along with the apostle Paul. You say, Gordon, I got a couple of questions for you. My first question is, does the Bible advocate slavery? Is that what's going on here? I mean, is the Bible, why isn't it not just saying outright that Onesimus shouldn't be a slave? What, how do we explain that? Well, first of all, let me just say um, up front that the Bible does not advocate slavery. I did a series here several years ago called One Race, and we investigated slavery in the Bible. Slavery in the Bible was far different from the antebellum slavery that we knew of here in the Americas. Slavery about which the Bible speaks was a form of indentured servanthood, and that's why in this particular translation, the ESV, it uses the word bond servant. This is where a person would place themselves under the charge of a master, and in turn, that master would house, would clothe, and would feed that servant. In turn, that master would also teach their bond servant a trade or a skill like shoemaking, like masonry, like wagon repair, and whatever the master himself was skilled at. As the bondservant is learning this trade over years, they would become good at it. They would become a skilled laborer, and they would continue to work for the master. And the master, in turn, would then begin to recoup some of his or her investment in that bondservant. Eventually, the bondservant would have fulfilled the time that he or she had agreed to work, and they would then be set free. They'd go out and start their own business. They would have their own bondservants. And in the first century... In the first century, the time that these letters are being circulated around, the time the Apostle Paul is, uh, is doing his ministry, about half of the population of the Roman Empire were indentured servants, were bondservants. So 50%, half of the population of the Roman Empire were bondservants. So you can see that the Romans have a whole lot at stake in maintaining the integrity of this system. It was the foundation of their economy in many ways. 
Now, what Onesimus does is he skips town before Philemon has his chance to recoup his investment. Perhaps Onesimus had spent three or four years consuming Philemon's food, taking up bed space, and Philemon has devoted his time to Onesimus. And just as Onesimus was getting good at the skill that Philemon had taught him, Philemon was starting to see some return on his investment. Just as he's getting good at that, Onesimus skips town. This represented a significant financial loss to Philemon. And here's Paul writing a personal letter to Philemon saying, verse 18, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, because I know that he does, he left before he fulfilled his obligation, charge that to my account. You say, okay, Gordon, I'm beginning to understand the picture here, this relationship between Philemon and Onesimus, between the master and the slave, between the master and the bondservant. But there's one more question that I have, and that is, why is Onesimus' presence at this church in Colossae such a dramatic thing? Why is, it, why is it a cause of such contention or such stirring of the pot? Um, what difference does it make to anybody who lives there in Colossae? Well, it makes a big difference. Look at verse 23 of Philemon. Notice that all the same people were with Paul when he writes Colossians, and they were also there with Paul when he writes the letter to Philemus. This is where we're going to go back to. We're not going to go to the diagram just yet. This is in your mind. We're going back to the diagram, okay? Philemon chapter 1, verse 23, he mentions Epaphras. So Epaphras is with Paul while he's writing this letter to Philemon. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends his greetings to you. Verse 24, and so do other people who are with me. Mark, Aristarchus. Demas and Luke. Remember those names? My fellow workers. Notice up in verse 2 that Archippus, who is the receiving, on the receiving end of the letter in, to the letter to the Colossians. Remember at the very end of the letter to the Colossians, Paul mentions this guy named Aristarchus. Same thing here in the letter to Philemon at the beginning. He mentions Aristarchus. He says, um, he says to Philemon, our fe- beloved fellow worker, and Apia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. Now the next line there in verse 2 is the kicker. Okay, this, you, you've hung in there so long. Uh, this, is, this is the payoff moment, okay? Here we go. The end of verse 2, it says, The short letter Paul's addressed to Philemon. He addresses it to Apia, to Archippus, and to the church that meets in your Philemon's house. So the church at Colossae met at Philemon's home. And there sits, on this particular Sunday... Onesimus, the runaway slave. Might we suppose that everyone in the church knows about the history between these two men? Might we suppose that everyone in that church feels the tension in the room as Paul's letter, personal letter to Philemon is also seal broken, opened up, and read aloud to the congregation? Because remember, Paul's letter to Philemon is not only addressed to him, it's addressed to Apia, it's addressed to Aristarchus, and it's addressed to the church that meets in Philemon's home. All right, one more little loose end to tie up. Flip back to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 22. This will begin to make a little bit more sense why Paul mentions things like this. We, We... Chapter 3, beginning at verse 18, begins this section we studied a couple weeks ago where Paul is talking about order in the home. And he talks about different roles in the home uh, that people fulfill. And when we get to verse 22, he talks about the role of the bondservant. He says, verse 22, bondservants, remember which Onesimus is. He says, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. 
So Paul is not trying to unravel the system of bond servants and their masters of indentured servanthood, even though Onesimus is right there asking to be forgiven, asking to be released from his obligations. Paul says this is a unique and special circumstance, but on the whole, we need to keep order. We need to fulfill our obligations. He goes on to say, verse 23, whatever you bond servants do, work heartily as for the Lord. Verse 25, for the wrongdoer, that is the bond servant who skips town, the bond servant who is slack in their responsibilities around the home, will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. So again, in asking Philemon to forgive and release Onesimus from his obligations, Paul is quick to remind everyone that this is a special circumstance, but that on the whole, we need to keep order in the home. We need to fulfill the obligations that are ours to fulfill. And then a final word for the master, chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul writes, Masters, of which Philemon is, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In other words, one day you masters are going to have to stand before and answer to God, just as your servants have to answer to you. All right, let's go back to our diagram real quickly. Um, you can see all the key players and all the people we've mentioned so far. Um, let's sum all this up. Paul writes this marvelous letter to the Colossians. It addresses many of their theological concerns, and it also addresses some real-life practical issues that the Colossians were dealing with. At the close of the letter, which we have gone through, Paul gives greetings from many of the people who are with him in Rome while he is in chains, people who are attending to his needs, people that are known by this, uh, this congregation locally in Colossae. Some of these people, like Mark and Luke, would have been known across all of Christendom because they, like Paul, have traveled broadly. And we also learn in these closing lines that this letter has been hand-delivered by Tychicus, who is being accompanied by Onesimus, and that Onesimus has got a separate letter also addressed to the church, but that it is intended for a fellow named Philemon in whose home the church at Colossae meets. Now, you've got all those things those tied up together now, right? Got it all straight in your mind. Um, the point of this second letter is to secure Onesimus' freedom so that he can return back to Rome and assist Paul and then join the missionary efforts. And that is our passage for today. <laughs> I had a lot of fun this week. Uh, moments of confusion for sure, but nevertheless. Um, do you feel like you've uh, probably been around the world and back again? At least I did when I got through with all that. Um, it's a lot of information. It's a lot of names. It's a lot to take in. Um, and so that means it's time for us now to stop and ask our most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? That's a great question. Let's see what we can do uh, in answering that. You know, one of the great benefits, I love to read novels, not as much now as I used to, but I love to read novels. And one of the great benefits that perhaps for those of you that are avid readers, what we gain from that is an opportunity to be self-reflective, to be introspective. You know, we, we see the characters unfolding in the story, and sometimes we see little snippets of ourselves, and we're able to kind of reflect on ourselves and our lives and how things are going. And I thought um, this morning it might be appropriate to ask, who in this story of these cast of characters might I relate to? Um, let's take Onesimus for starters. Onesimus skips out on his responsibilities. He runs away from home. That is, Onesimus makes a big, life-altering mistake. And as I was reading this story, and I thought to myself, you know what, I've, I've made some pretty big mistakes in life. I've said some things that I regret. I've uh, done some things that were not too smart. And isn't that part of life? That mistakes are going to happen. They're going to be made. 
I mean, as long as I am living here in this sinful flesh, as long as my sinful nature resides on the inside of me, the potential at least for me to make mistakes, some of them bigger than others, um, is ever present. Paul writes about this in his letter to the Romans. He writes Romans chapter 7 and verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul's been wrestling, you know, the things I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing, the things I wish I was doing, that's what I don't do. And so he's dealing with his sinful nature. Now what's interesting about Onesimus' story is that Onesimus seeks to make amends for the wrongs that he has committed. That is, Onesimus does not spend his life running from his mistakes, but rather he bravely, courageously turns and faces them head on. When I was in elementary school, maybe third or fourth grade, I got a hall pass to go to the bathroom. And when I got down there to the bathroom, another one of my friends was from another class, happened to be in there. And we got finished going to the bathroom. We decided, hey, you know what, well, let's just kill some time. And so we, uh, well, I guess, I don't know if it was like a third grade thing. But anyway, we started climbing around on the stalls in the bathroom and swinging from the little crossbar, you know, and swinging back and forth. And um, just as I was in mid-swing, in walks one of the elementary school teachers. And I remember letting go of the thing and landing right in front of the guy. And I was like, oh, what I must tell you is that this is the school where my mom happened to teach. <clears throat> and so he said, Gordon, come with me. I knew where that meant. So we were heading down the hallway to my mom's classroom, and he marched me down the hall and knocked on her door, and she came out the door. He had to disrupt her class. She came out the door, poked her head out the door, and there I stand next to him in this empty hallway, and you kind of figure something's not right. He made me confess to my mom what I had done and how I'd been treating the bathroom stalls like a jungle gym. <clears throat> now, what if, let's just say, what if that teacher had said, hey, boys, knock that off, get on back to class? What, what if he had just not taken the time to say, you know what, Gordon, we're going to go down there to your mom, and I'm going to make you stand and own the stuff that you've done? If he had done that, friends, I would have missed out on one of the most important lessons in life, and that is when we make mistakes, and we are going to make mistakes, a wretched man that I am who will rescue me from this body of death, when we make mistakes, we need to own those mistakes, not run from them. You know, we may never be able to fully make amends for the mistakes we make in life. We may never be able to completely set things right again. But friends, as long as we refuse to admit our mistakes, we will live our lives on the run. And that's the first difference that this makes to your life and to mine, is that it is in our best interest to own our mistakes and to confess our sins. Listen to these words of wisdom from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Or how about Psalm chapter 32, written by King David? Y'all know the story of King David. He made some whoppers of mistakes in the course of his life. And David writes, I acknowledged my sin to you, God, and I did not, over, I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sins. Again, friends, we can spend our lives trying to outrun our mistakes, expending enormous amounts of energy and time trying to do so. Um, but the one who is free, the one who owns their mistakes, confesses their sins before God, and where possible makes amends for what they've done. Friends, mistakes are going to happen. It's part of living in this body of flesh. 
but how we handle those mistakes in the aftermath will determine what kind of freedom we enjoy for the rest of our lives. All right, second and final character in this story for reflection is Philemon. Philemon has a decision to make. Uh, do I forgive this man? Or do I withhold forgiveness and hang on to some sort of a grudge? You know, we love forgiveness when it comes to us. Right? We, we love to be forgiven. We love it when God, through Jesus, forgives us and the, and the concept of that. And it's just a wonderful thing. It's freeing to us. However, when we are asked to do the same for others, eh, not so much fun. I mean, think about what forgiveness is. It is can canceling the record of wrongs that have been done to us. It is never bringing back up again that mistake that we made. It is casting the wrongs that were done to you in the depths of the sea. Friends, that's what God does for us, and that's what God asks us to do for others. Listen to these verses from Scripture. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, Paul writes, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. How about Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13, middle of the verse, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And then Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount himself said, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 14 and 15, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, verse 15. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Friends, the message is clear. God wants for us to forgive. You know, it's basically him saying, What's good for the goose, what's the saying? What's good for the goose is also good for the gander, right? And so God's saying, look, if you want me to forgive you, and of course we do, and we love it when God forgives us, and God says you need to show a reciprocal uh, response to others who have trespassed against you. Now that raises the question, why does God place such a high premium? Why does God place such a high premium on us forgiving others? I mean, this is perhaps Jesus' statement there in Matthew chapter 6. The sharpest statement in all of Scripture about God's expectation of us. God talks about helping the poor in Scripture. The Bible talks about in Scripture marital fidelity. It talks about showing kindness. But nowhere in the Bible does God place this kind of an ultimatum on our response. Except in the case of forgiveness. Why is that? Well, I think it's because of what God knows, that just like with confessing our sins and owning our stuff, when we forgive, just like when we confess our sins and own our stuff, when we forgive, we are set free. Friends, God wants you and me to be free. He wants us to be free from sin. He wants us to be free from guilt. And he also wants us to be free from the danger of painting ourselves as victims or trying to hold on to a grudge. Those things just make prisoners out of us. And God, in his great wisdom, knows that forgiveness is the way that we are set free. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, we thank you for uh, these people in, in the text. Lord, it's, this is not just a book about uh, who you are and about postulating theological concepts. But Lord, it's real life. It's where we're living. And so, Lord, we thank you for the challenge today that we see written right into the pages of Scripture. Who knew, as Paul is greeting people, 
that he's actually sending a strong message of your expectations. Or we just ask in the quietness of these moments that if there's some confession that we need to make to you, Lord, if there's some amends that we need to make, Lord, that you would set that before us. Lord God, if there's some forgiveness that we need to grant, Lord, that you would set that before us. That you would help us to be brave, that you would help us to be bold, that you would help us to be humble. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your broken body. We thank you for your shed blood, which makes all these things possible. Speak and stir and move in our hearts this morning, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.
you will stand with us.
Perfect. That's way better. Um, so, again, we just wanted to take a moment to honor our seniors graduating again. Um, so if you are a senior, if you would just make your way to the front, uh, we just want to take a moment to recognize y'all. I know that not all six of us are here, but we got most of us. There we go. Um, as they're making their way, really, we just want to take an opportunity to just just show them one last time, not, not last time, but one more time, that we love them, that we're here for them, and that we as a community of believers, that we as a church are going to be praying for them, and that wherever they may go, um, we're, we're here, and that we are faithful in prayer, and we are faithful in love, and they are always welcome back. And so um, just wanted to, to give one little challenge, I guess, um, as Paul talks, walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have been given. Uh, and and uh, in other places, he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And, and then the author of Hebrews even says, uh, fix your eyes on Christ. And all of this comes out of living in that truth that you are loved. And all of this comes out of living in that truth of, of God just pouring out his love over y'all. And just knowing that each and every person in here is, is praying over you and loving on you. And as you know that, you are able to love better. Um, and it's by this that we know that we are his, that we love one another. Um, and so I just want to give you all that. Um, so we, if y'all want to, we're going to pray. And then at, at the end of the service, if y'all want to come and love on them, tell them we're praying for them, lay, whatever, hug them, do all that. Y'all come on up to the front, okay? So I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're gonna to do that. All right. Father God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the opportunity that we have with these students. God, every time that we have a graduating class, it, it hits again that it, our time with these students is limited. God, and I pray that we would just use our time wisely, that we would make conversations count, and that we would have time building relationships. And God, that we would spend time seeking you, modeling this, and, and, and taking the opportunities to pour the love of Christ into these students. God, we just thank you. We thank you for, for glorious moments like this where we can come and celebrate the, 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 the good work that they have done. God, we thank you for this group of students. God, we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all are dismissed. As y'all make your way out, though, make sure you come up to the front and congratulate these guys.